You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Good morning, my name is Brooke Krause, and this morning we'll be reading from Genesis 43, 1 through 15. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do have your Bibles, please stand for the reading of God's Word. It's page 25 in the seatback Bibles in front of you. Genesis 43. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again. Buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? And they replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back to your other brother, and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present and took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Let us pray. Father, thank you for allowing us to gather here this morning. I pray that you give Pastor Dave peace as he preaches your word and may your, your word and your truth fall on soft hearts. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Brooke. It's good to be with you guys this morning. Great to be able to uh, gather here on this wonderful Sunday morning. I don't know about you, but I, I love when the temperatures cool down. Don't you? I mean, fall is one of my favorite seasons. I love it for lots of different reasons. I love it because... Well, kids go back to school, and there's some routine. That's a nice thing. Uh, I love it because there's football games. I, I love college football, professional football. Uh, good game, K-State. Um, I love you, friends. Uh, I love there's marching band in the fall. I've had kids that have done band for years and years. Uh, I love that there's the ability to be able to 
uh, kind of see the kids perform and to, and to uh, work hard and to present this marching band halftime show. But what I really love about the fall is cross country. I look forward to the season because cross country is what happens in the fall. And if you don't like cross country, we well, probably didn't do it. Or you don't know, because uh, cross country is one of those weird sports. It's like you've got to go run a long distance out in the middle of, the middle of nowhere, and then you get judged on how well you do that. It's a strange sport in general, but I, I love it. I love finding in the cross-country courses those out-of-the-way places, way in the back where nobody else is, not in the front or the, you know, the start or finish line, but way in the back in the woods where no one is. And you can yell these words of encouragement to the kids. They come trudging through with a look of defeat in their eyes. You can say, keep going. You're doing great. You're doing great. Keep going. I love being able to encourage them to be able to finish well and ideally to be able to improve from race to race. That, that, that's why we do things like that. That's why we do sports or athletics and so we, we can improve on our time, on our abilities, on our, our cardio, cardiovascular lungs, capacity, all those weird things. We try to get better every time we go out and do something. I'm kind of a weird cross-country dad on the fact that I love spreadsheets too. So I keep track of all the kids' times uh, on a spreadsheet. The kids hate it, but I do it anyway because I love to see how they're doing and how well they're doing from year to year and from race to race to allow them to see, here's how good you're doing. Great, good job. You've improved this many seconds or minutes from year to year. And it's, it's strange, but I want them to be able to look back. I want them to be able to look and say, oh, here's where I was and here's where I am, but here's where I, I want to get to. Here's some goals that I have and I want to set this in the future. I want them to, to not be content with where they have been, and really where they are right now, but to say, where is it that they could get to if they keep applying, if they keep working, if they, keep, if they kept saying, I want to become something that I'm not. And really, cross-country and tracking those numbers is really not much different than what all of us do, right? We, we like to, to improve. We like to change. We like to, to see how we're doing along the way. And whether we do it intentionally or not, we ask these diagnostic questions of ourselves. Things like, you know, am I really doing better? Am I, am I improving from year to year? Have I, have I done all the things I said I was going to do last year and I, I made up these new things I want to do this year? How am I doing on my resolutions? Am I learning from my past mistakes? Have I taken the things that I've learned and am I, am I not making those mistakes over and over and over again? Am I changing for the better? And how am I gauging that? Without a spreadsheet, without numbers, how are you evaluating how you're doing from year to year, from event to event? And if you ever thought about these kind of questions, that they're, again, they're questions that have gone through my head for years, and I, I think many of us ask these questions of ourselves, am I improving? Am I getting better? And the good thing is we're not the only ones who are asking these kind of questions. We're not looking for moments of change, for glimpses of improvement. It's been happening all throughout human history. And in our passage today, it's, it's no different. In Genesis chapter 43, we are, are looking at this family, at these individuals, and they themselves are asking these kind of diagnostic questions. Are, are we improving? Are we changing? Are we who we used to be, or are we content with being who we are now, or who might we become in the future? And so we have the ability to kind of glance in and to look back at them and to ask these kind of questions and so I, I hope that if you have your Bibles and we haven't already turned to Genesis 43, we're going to be looking through the, the chapter of Genesis 43 and asking these questions of have they changed? What change do we see in these individuals? What improvement, if any, is there? 
So again, if you have your Bible, let's turn to Genesis chapter 43, and we've been walking through the book of Genesis here over the last few months, and we're uh, kind of in the last third of the book now. And if you haven't been with us for a while, that's fine. I'll catch you up a little bit so we're all on the same page heading into this, this chapter. We've been following the, the life of a man named Jacob who had 12 sons. One of those sons he loved more than the other sons. Uh, a son named Joseph. He's the guy with the multicolored coat and the musical named after him. And Joseph's brothers hated him because dad poured all these gifts, this, this extra attention onto him. In fact, the older brothers hated him so much that they wouldn't even talk to him. And eventually they decided it's better for us to throw him in a pit and kill him than to have him running around. They threw him in a pit, thought we're going to kill him. They thought, now we can make some money off this kid. So they sold him down to some traveling merchants who were going down to Egypt. They told dad that he was dead, and for about 20 years, they lived basically pain-free because of that decision. Joseph was out of their hair. They were doing fine. No more favoritism. Dad was a little sad, but that's fine. The brothers got what they wanted. But Joseph, meanwhile, spent 20 years down in Egypt as a slave or a servant, eventually becoming the second in command of all the country. He became in this place where he had great favor with Pharaoh, and eventually he became this place where he almost became the savior of Egypt, where he led them into and through this horrible famine through all the Middle East. In fact, everybody was feeling it, including his family back home. And so his brothers in chapter 42 were sent down by dad to go buy some grain so that they could, they could live, essentially survive, because Egypt had extra grain. The brothers showed up in front of Joseph, had no idea who, who this guy was, but Joseph knew who they were. And he decided he would do what any good brother would do, he threw him in jail. He put him in there and said, you guys are spies. I know it. And as they were in jail, they were talking to each other. And at the end of last chapter, we saw this. And Pastor Jeremy walked us through this. They said, we're probably here right now because of what we did to Joseph. Those many years ago. It broke Joseph's heart. And so he sent them back home. But he said, I'm going to keep one of you. This poor guy named Simeon, who was not a very good good kid, but I'm going to keep Simeon in jail. You go back home to dad and you bring this younger brother back to me to prove that you're not spies. So we sent him back to home and the chapter 42 ends with the dad, with, with Jacob, hearing that he's lost another brother or another son down there in Egypt. And they're saying, you want me to send another son down to Egypt? There's no way in Sheol this is going to happen. It's in the Bible. It's in there. He says that. There's no way. He puts his foot down and says, I am not losing another son. And that's how the previous chapter ends. And so when we pick up here in chapter 43, that's kind of the condition of this family. Their, their hearts are hardened. They have dug their, their heels in. They're not wanting to change. But this chapter is a bit of a change for all of them. See, this is chapter 43, and in 42, 43, and 44, Joseph sets out some traps and tests for his brothers. And we're going to see how they respond to these tests, how they respond to these questions of, have you changed? So Joseph's going to be looking critically. We get to look critically at them as well and ask some questions and see, has this family changed? And in verses 1 to 10, we're going to be focusing on one of the older brothers. He kind of comes to the forefront here. And we ask this first question. There's four questions we're going to ask. The first question as asked today is, is there a change in Judah? Do we see a change in Judah? There in verses 1 to 10. 
So again, chapter 43 opens. The famine is still raging. We don't know exactly how long it's been, but most Bible scholars think it's been at least two years. Two years of Simeon being down there in prison. Two years of the brothers and, and Jacob living off of the nine bags of grain that they brought back up with them from Egypt. But now the food's run out, and I appreciate how the dad, Jacob, just says to his sons, hey, go again, buy us a little food. Like, run down to the grocery store, pick up some extra food. We, we're almost out. Go down and get some. But it's Judah who speaks up in verse 3 on behalf of all the brothers and reminds Dad of the, of the situation that they find themselves in. He says, Dad, remember. Remember what the man said down there. He said, we should not come back down unless we bring Benjamin with us. And if we don't bring Benjamin with us, we're not getting any food. We can't do this, Dad. We're not just going to run down the grocery store and grab some stuff. Which ticks Jacob off something fierce. And so in verse said, Jacob, who's also called Israel here in this passage, he says to his sons, why did you treat me so badly? As to tell the man down in Egypt that you had another brother. The brothers replied, well, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? See, Jude, on behalf of the brother, says, we didn't know what this guy was doing. We had no clue. We just want to get out of there with our lives. We just want a little grain. We're just trying to get back home, Dad. We, we're just answering the man in charge. But it's Judah again in verses 8 through 10 who has this soft answer to his father's harsh words. He says, Dad, if, if we don't go, if we don't go down there and buy grain, we're going to die, you're going to die, and all your grandkids, they're dead too. And this is end of lines discussion here, Dad. What are you going to do? And on the end, on the surface, it may seem like it's just kind of a no-brainer. Well, Dad should obviously say yes and send Benjamin down. But that's not what the passage tells us. In verse 9, as Judah is, is being so very kind to his father, he makes this amazing statement. Look there in verse 9. He says, I will be a pledge of his safety, of Benjamin's safety. From my hand you shall require him. And if I don't bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Judah says, I will be a pledge of his safety. And if you were with us a couple weeks ago, when Jonathan led us through this weird passage in chapter 38 of Genesis, it was kind of a strange story of, of Judah and Tamar and some other events that, that took place. You might remember that Judah made a pledge back then, too. He made this pledge where he gave his daughter-in-law, Tamar, a pledge of his signet, his cords, and his staff. It's kind of the, the modern day or the ancient equivalent of, of giving somebody your wallet with your credit card and driver's license saying, hold on to this, I'll be right back. Hold on to these things, and if I don't come back, they're, they're yours. Well, Judah gave them to Tamar, uh, as a pledge, as a down payment to secure her services <clears throat> as a prostitute. Um, but with the promise that he would return back to get his things later on, and he'd even give her a goat as exchange. So it was a really strange, weird passage. But at the heart of this was, this, was Judah making a pledge, giving this pledge to her. 
See, Judah was making this pledge to her for self, selfish, sinful gain, trying to cover his own tracks. But here, you see the change? Same word pledge, same guy, Judah, but there's a change in what he says. He's not making a pledge, but he's offering now to be the pledge, to stand in the place for his brother, to not say, I'm just going to give you some cords and signets and a goat and have that be my word. He says, I will be the one who stands in Benjamin's place. Dad, if something happens to him, you can, you can have my life. I give me for him. He's willing to give up his freedom, even his own life, to rescue his brothers, to save his father Jacob from the grief of losing yet another son. Has Judah changed over the last couple chapters? Yeah, there's a bit of a change that happens in his life. He understands, I can't take and take and take from others. I need to be willing to give, even if it costs me my life. And so Judah kind of closes his little section here in verse 10, and, and we're wondering, okay, Judah said his piece. He's made his pitch. What's dad going to say? How's, how's Judah going to respond? And, or how's Jacob going to respond? And we find that out in verses 11 to 14, the second question that this passage asks us. It's, do we see a change in Jacob, not just in Judah, the son, but in dad. What's he going to do when posed with this pledge in front of him, when posed with the reality he will die without sending Benjamin? What will he do? Well, let's see in verse 11, he says this, their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take Double the money with you and carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of the sacks. And perhaps it was just an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go again to the man. So Judah pledges himself to keep his brother safe. You can kind of feel the tension in the room just lower. As Judah says, or as Jacob the dad says, okay, since you have to go, let's make a plan. He sends with them some presents, some stuff. I mean, obviously, if you're going to go grovel at the foot of the second most powerful man in the land and the whole mod, you know, modern world, you're going to bring him some stuff. I love what he brings them. Gum, honey, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. And kids, if you're going to go ask your parents for something that you know you're probably not going to get, a little gum, pistachio nuts, doesn't hurt. Bring that with you. I think that's a good thing we can learn from here. He says, not only that, but take the money with you. Take double the money with you. Take back the money that you wrongly brought home and also bring some more. He didn't know if inflation would have hit Egypt or if the man would have just said, oh, I'm going to charge you double this time. But take some more. So he presses some cash into their hands on the way out. And he says, take Benjamin with you. Take this beloved son of mine, the one that I have left, my favorite. Take him down there with you. But even with his plan, he doesn't trust the presence or the extra money or even sending Benjamin, ultimately we see what his trust really is in. In verse 14, the words of Jacob, as he's praying his kids out, he says, may God Almighty grant you mercy before that man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, then I am bereaved. I so appreciate this about this man. He, 
He begins by invoking and by remembering who really is in charge of this situation. It's not just the man down there, not just that, that guy in Egypt. He's not only the one in charge here. He says, may God Almighty grant you mercy. He invokes this word that we don't get in our, our English Bible, but the, the, the name here of God Almighty, the, the name that he says is the name El Shaddai. He says, may El Shaddai grant you mercy before this man. And this isn't the first time that this name has been used in the Bible. The first time God uses this name, El Shaddai, to describe himself, to point to his character and his nature. He says to Abraham, I know you're 99 years old. I know your wife Sarai is barren, but I'm going to give you a son. Why? Because I'm El Shaddai. I'm all powerful. I can do whatever I put my mind to. I can do that. I can keep the promises and the covenants that don't seem like they're going to be kept. I can do that because I am El Shaddai. And the Lord uses this name, the Bible uses this name to describe him when speaking of covenant promises that seem to be on the brink of extinction. To remind the listeners, to remind us as readers that he is the one who's in charge. Jacob prays that God Almighty, El Shaddai, would grant his sons mercy in the sight of this man. And I don't know if you've been following along, but it stuck out to me that this is the first time the word mercy is used in the Bible. 43 chapters in, the word mercy shows up. It shows up two times in Genesis, and both of those times are here in this chapter. And mercy is not the same as grace, but mercy is when somebody who's in a position of power and of authority, who has all right to just destroy the people underneath them who have been unrighteous, who have been unkind, who have not followed the rules correctly, when that person in power relents and says, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. I'm going to withhold from you what you rightly have earned. And that's what the dad here is praying. He's, he's praying, oh Lord, would that man down there in Egypt, would he be merciful to my sons? Would he relent? Would he not treat them like they deserve to be treated? Lord, would you help soften his heart? So he goes with great faith. He says, Lord, I trust you. But then he has this little phrase at the end of verse 14. He says, for if I am bereaved of my children, then I am bereaved. And I, I wondered, what are you doing here? Jacob, what are you, what are you doing here? It, it, it seems like you're being a little pessimistic here. It seems like if you have faith, you should just say, well, God, you're going to do this. It's going to be great. I'll see you guys in a couple weeks. High five. Come on back. But he says, but if I lose my children, if I'm deprived of my children, then I am deprived of my children. Remember, friends, he's risking everything here. To use poker terms, he is pushing all into the middle of the pot and saying, this is my one chance. This is all we have to survive. If this plan doesn't work, if this Hail Mary that I'm throwing here doesn't get caught in the end zone, we're dead. Me and all my kin. I bet he's wondering, would, would none of my sons, would some of my sons, would all of my sons ever return back to me? He didn't know. He just didn't know. 
and been faced with the prospect of, of losing all that he held dear. Would Jacob rely upon himself and his plan or God Almighty? It seems like at least at this point in his life, he is saying, God Almighty, El Shaddai, I lean into your name. I trust your name here. But what about the rest of his family? <clears throat> because this dad, he's, he's always been kind of one of the, with the good guys. He's gone up and down a little bit. He's had some rough times and some good times. But his brothers, they've been awful the whole way through. They've been horrible. They're killing people. They're taking what they want. They're throwing people in pits and selling them. Very little good things have ever been said about the older brothers. And so I'm wondering... As the author continues down here in chapter 43, what are we going to see? And it's the brothers who now come into the focus in verses 15 to 25. And this third question that the author asks us, do we see now a change in the older brothers? Is there a change in their life as well? well we're told in verse 15 that the guys, the brothers, took the presents, all the gum, pistachio, myrrh, they took double the money with them, and they took Benjamin. They arose, went down to Egypt, and they stood again before Joseph. And remember, Benjamin is the only brother who's standing there before Joseph, who's, who's part of this traveling party who did not betray him 20-some years ago. Benjamin's the only full brother that Joseph has from his mom, Rachel. And when Joseph looks at and sees Benjamin... I think it shows a little bit of something to Joseph. I think it proves at least that the brothers aren't entirely horrible. They came back. Even before they say a word, even before they open their mouth, even before they even try to explain away what happened, he says, well, at least you're here. And there's Benjamin with you. Okay. They're doing a little bit of what I've asked them to do. And what I appreciate about Joseph in this moment is he had the entire weight of Egypt behind him. And he could have just thrown it all at them at that point. But last time he interacted with them, the previous chapter, he was gruff and stern. He was the man. But now there's a bit of a change in how he speaks about them and to them. You see in verse 16 that, that Joseph, he's standing there looking at his brothers. He, he said that he saw Benjamin with them. And he said to the steward of his house, bring those men into my house and slaughter an animal and make ready for those men, my brothers, they're to dine with me at noon. And the man, the steward of the house, did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. There's a kindness about Joseph here. He speaks kindly about them, invites them into his home to share a meal with him, But the brothers, however, have no clue what he's doing. Remember, he's speaking Egyptian to the steward of his house. He's speaking another language to them. And the brothers, they're just kind of standing in front of him going, I don't know what's happening. This is kind of weird. They don't speak the language and they're wondering. And all of a sudden now they're being ushered somewhere else, taken away from this man. They're not told the, order, the or orders that Joseph had given. Because all they, again, want to do is get down there, get Simeon get some grain, and go home. But they're brought into this ruler's house. They're disoriented. I think they're freaking out just a little bit. And we see that because they can't stop talking about one thing over and over and over and over and over again. Money. 
money. They're saying in verses 18 to 22, hey, we've got your money. We don't know how we got your money. We got it back to you, your money. We've got your money. Take our money. We brought some more money in case you need some more money. We have more money to give to you. We want to give you all the monies. That's what they're basically saying to him. We have it. You, you, you need it. We have it to give to you. They're really worried, concerned about money here in this moment. It's an interesting callback to the beginning of Joseph's story. Because remember, the brothers threw him in a pit and thought, let's just kill him. He saw the merchants and said, we can make some money off this kid. Let's sell him. We'll pocket a little bit of money. Dad will never know. We're a little better off. And Joseph's out of our hair. Money has always been the thing with the brothers. It's been something with them. They've wanted more. Now they have too much. And they're saying, please take it back from us. It's not ours. It's yours. They want to be open and honest with their finances. They're trying to make financial amends. No more profiteering off of selling people. They want to give back what is not theirs to the person to whom it rightly belongs. They're almost throwing the money back at Joseph's servant saying, please take this. Take this burden off of us. The guilt is too great. There's this change, even here in their actions, from lying and deceiving to now living openly with integrity, regardless of the outcome. They didn't know what they would do. They didn't know what the next words would be. They didn't know how the servant would respond. They didn't know how Joseph would respond. They didn't know if their lives were at stake here in this moment. But they said, this is not ours, it's yours. Take it. And while they're wondering if they're going to live another moment, I can imagine it would have been so sweet to hear the servant say to them the words that we read in verse 23. The servant replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them, this, this brother. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, they had washed their feet. And when the servant had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon. For the brothers heard that they should eat bread there. Well, they're coming in saying, just take this guilt from me. Take these bags of money. Take it back. The servant says, on behalf of Joseph, peace to you. Don't be afraid. And Joseph could have responded with violence against the violence that had been done to him. Instead, he instructs his servant to speak peace to them. Because his God and their God and the God of their father is part of the equation here. It's because Joseph fears God. Joseph's brothers have nothing to fear. They just don't know it yet. See, Joseph fears God. He has all throughout his imprisonment and his slavery. He's feared God. In spite of all that his brothers deserve because of their great sin, God is giving them this treasure, not just of their money, but of the undeserved mercy that Joseph gives to them. See, while the brothers are trying to offer back all the guilt and shame that they had so they could gain forgiveness or whatever, God's doing something unbelievable for them. And friends, it's the exact same thing that God is doing for us today. 
he's doing for them, what he's still doing for us today is that God in his mercy and in his goodness, he knows that we owe a debt of sin that we cannot repay. That none of us can ever remove a debt that can't be erased by bringing back bags of good works or good deeds or bags of money to God and saying, please take this. Is this enough? Can I do enough? Can I give enough so that you're not mad at me anymore? See, the Bible tells us we can't bring enough gum and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds to get rid of our great sin. Now, the Bible says only those who acknowledge that they cannot do it are the ones who have any hope of real lasting forgiveness of sin, real truly being right before God. The only ones who say, I cannot bring you enough, God, to pay back my sin, to pay back the weight of my deception against you, they're the only ones who can really understand mercy. The gospel tells us that there's nothing that we can do but only through what God has done that we could ever really understand the same mercy that these brothers were experiencing here. We're dependent upon someone greater than us to show us mercy, to relent from the right destruction that is rightfully ours. The brothers were relying upon the man to be merciful. And friends, you and I, we, humanity, we're relying upon God to be merciful to us. See, they were just hoping that they wouldn't be killed on the spot, these, these brothers. They were just hoping to give the bags quickly, run away, and get back home. They weren't looking for mercy because they knew that they did not deserve it. But yet Joseph, because he feared God, he extended unmerited mercy to his brothers in the midst of their fear. The brothers, they may have changed a little bit, but how they're being treated has changed completely. They're now the recipients of mercy, of compassion, of kindness, of grace that they did not earn in any way. So we've been watching these changes in the brothers, and as readers, we get to see these changes in Judah and Jacob and now these brothers. But there's one last person that we get to look at here in this passage. One last time to zero in and say, have they changed? And it's looking at Joseph. And does Joseph see a change in his brothers? Because again, this is the middle of three tests that he lays out. We want to know, I, I want to know, how does Joseph really respond when standing face to face with them, when given the chance to come down hard? He can do it. He can still do it. There's still time. They're still wondering. They still are off, off kilter. They don't know what's going on still. He could still come in and destroy them. But the focus of this chapter now shifts to Joseph and his interaction with his brothers in verses 26 to 34. And in these closing verses, Joseph finally meets face-to-face with them. Standing in the same room with them, breathing the same air with these brothers. These nine who threw him in a pit, and this one who he hasn't seen. In verse 29, we're told that he sees his younger brother, Benjamin, face-to-face. And when he sees him, when he sees him, Verse 30 says that compassion overwhelmed him. 
his compassion grew warm for his brother. And remember earlier back in verse 14 where, where the dad, Jacob, prays that God Almighty, El Shaddai, would you, would you use this man, would you allow him to, to be merciful to my sons? Here in verse 30, this word compassion that our English translators have translated is the exact same Hebrew word for mercy. It says that Joseph looked at his brothers with compassion and mercy. His heart broke for them. The same mercy that Jacob prayed for overwhelms him so much that he has to leave the room because he can't be this man and be seen crying. Oh, but I love that he is. I love that he has to go away and compose himself and, and you know, clean his face and kind of get ready. And the only thing that we read about Jacob or about, about Joseph here in this whole passage, he's always seen as a guy that's in control. He is, he's the guy in charge. He is the one who is stoic. The only time that we ever see him break is when he stands and looks at his brothers who have done so much evil against him, who have hurt him so badly. He's now in the same room and he looks at them with mercy and compassion. I love that about this man. He commands that food be served, that they sit in one room and that the other Egyptian servants sit in another room and that Joseph is in a third room and he doesn't deprive his brothers of food as they had done to him. They're eating, they're drinking, they have enough. But this isn't some kind of a kumbaya moment where Joseph just says, everything is forgiven, and we're all good. Let's all come together, hold hands now. He, he still has this test for them. And he, he lays them out, he sits them out in verse 33 by their birth order. Oldest to youngest. And, and rightly, it says that the, the brothers were kind of amazed by this. Because how could this dude know what order their moms gave birth to them? That's just a little creepy and odd, even without social media here. Because remember, these guys have no idea who he is. He's known as the man. His name is Zapanath Panea there in Egypt. He's not Joseph. He's Zapanath. That's what everybody calls him. They have no idea who this dude is. And he seats them in the right place, in the right order. And then, I love the confusion grows, where they look down the row, and the youngest, Benjamin, he's got five plates of food. They've all got one, but Benjamin's got five. And if there's any moment here where you'd think the brothers would look down the row and be like, hey, Benjamin, pass it up. Come on, give us your food, give us your stuff. We're older than you. We've got bigger stomachs than you. Come on, pass it up here to us. It would be then, but that's not what happens. Because this is the test. This is the test that Joseph lays out to them. He, he gives the youngest, the favored one, even more and says, how will the brothers respond? Will they revert back to their jealous ways? Will they hate Benjamin because he has more? Because he has extra? Or will they rejoice with him? In verse 34, as the chapter closes with a kind of a fun little verse, it says that they drank and were merry with him. The idea being that they didn't look down the row and say, Benji, give me your food. They ate they rejoiced, had a good time. 
And while I like the ESV, the translation that we use here and the translation that's kind of in the back of the seat backs there, uh, I don't like how the Bible translators have translated this verse here. It doesn't really give us the, the true glimpse of what's happening. If we were to get back to the original languages, it would be something more like all the brothers drank and drank until they could drink no more, and they had a rip-roaring party in the house of the Lord of Egypt with their youngest brother, Benjamin. These guys love Benjamin. They don't hate him. They're not trying to throw him into a pit the next chance they get. They're rejoicing with him, enjoying him and who he is. It's the kind of party that we would not want to miss. But what is missing here is any whiff of jealousy. I love that. They're hanging around. They're hanging out. Benji with his five plates of steak and lobsters. And they're just like, that's cool. That's fine. We've got enough. We're okay. And there's joy and thankfulness in their heart. I, I can see joy for Simeon here as he's sitting around the table. He's like, I, I'm out of jail. Two years for no reason. Great. I'm so excited to be eating something that's healthy. There's joy for Benjamin because his brothers aren't ganging up on him for being dad's favorite. There's joy for Judah because his pledge is still intact. It seems like everything's going well. Benjamin's not being taken away. He's not going to have to go back to dad and say, I lost Benjamin. There's joy for the rest of the older brothers because they had somebody wash their feet, feed their donkeys. Now they've got bread to eat in the Lord of Egypt's house. I think there's joy, though, even for Joseph. As he sees firsthand the change in the hearts of all of his brothers. And we're going to see in chapters to come that Joseph rightly understands that what his brothers meant for evil back then, God is using for good. And Joseph understands that God is in the process of setting right all the wrong that has gone in the world and in his story especially. And as this chapter ends, this kind of in-between kind of stuck in the middle chapter, I'm struck by the overwhelming compassion that Joseph has for his brothers. See, friends, if we put ourselves in, in his sandals for just a moment and we consider all that he's experienced for the last 20-some years, those decades of being alone, those weeks and months and years where he doesn't have his dad to lean into, he doesn't have his brothers to even pick on him to show him that, he, that they love him a little bit, they, he's all alone. He's wondering, what's my family up to? Do they even care about me at all? Even as he ascended to be the second most powerful man in the world, he was alone, he was hurt, and he was forgotten. And when given the chance to get back at those who hurt him, and I mean, really, he could have gotten back at those who hurt him. He was overcome with compassion, and he wept over them. He showed them mercy and forgiveness when they deserved none. Friends, this sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Thinking of Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, when it describes Jesus looking out over the multitudes and he has compassion for them because they are downcast and they're helpless. They are sheep without a shepherd and he weeps over them. See, this is the same picture of Joseph that we have fulfilled in its completion in Jesus. And while most of us would like to think, yeah, we're, we're a lot like Joseph, we'd probably forgive people as they 
hurt us as they threw us in a pit and sold us off for a few decades. Yeah, we're, we're a lot like Joseph. No, friends, we're not. We're like the sheep, the crowds. We're like the brothers. We have no hope on our own, and we need someone to step down to us. Down into the muck, the mire, and lift our chin and point our eyes to the hope that we have, not in ourselves or our bags of goodness, our bags of money and good works, but the hope that we have in Christ, in Christ alone. We don't deserve mercy, we don't deserve compassion, but we have one who has extended it to us freely, joyfully, and without holding back. We have Jesus who says, I was in a position of power, and I stepped down to you. And I've offered you mercy and compassion. And all you have to do is say, thank you, and receive that. To receive the forgiveness, the grace, the peace, the mercy that we have in Jesus Christ. See, friends, we need to remember that the compassion that Joseph showed his brothers does not even come close to comparing to the compassion and mercy that God has shown us through Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus that we see compassion. It's through Jesus that we have salvation. It's through Jesus that our lives can truly be changed. Let's pray, friends. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the, the gift of this in-between passage here in, in Genesis 43. Thank you for the, the clarity that we have of your mercy and compassion as it is poured out to us who are sinners, who are in need of you so greatly. Christ, if there's any of us here this morning who know that we are trying to hand you bags of our good works, our good deeds, would you convict us of that and remind us it's not enough, we cannot do it. But may we lean into your mercy, your compassion, your forgiveness, even now, Christ, call out to you and believe in you today. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.